Hello, and welcome to the RD3 show. Today, I have a special episode on 10 things that I wish I knew before I joined the military. I think this episode would be useful if you have someone in your life or are considering uh, someone in your life who is considering joining the military, or if you are considering joining the military, or even if you would like to know a little bit more about the military from someone who was not in a crazy special operator position like Jocko Willink or David Goggins and all the other Navy SEALs who get a book deal as soon as they graduate, buds. Um, sorry, that's not a slight on them. It just seems like uh, back in the 90s, it used to be possible to write a book about being in the military, and now everybody who writes a book who has been in the military seems to either be a politician or a Navy SEAL. So uh, without further ado, and uh, all comments about them to the side, because you know, like a someone who was a basic Marine talking about a Navy SEAL is kind of like Cal, uh, like University of California, Berkeley students getting angry about Stanford. Like in the words of the comedian, Sean Keen, all the complaints are like, oh, you know, Stanford has so much money. I'm jealous. Like special operators are so awesome. I'm jealous. So uh, that's that's kind of where that humor comes from a little bit. So uh, th these are 10 things, and they're in no particular order, because I don't think you can really apply a top 10 to these things. It's hard enough to kind of narrow down 10 things that I wish I knew. A uh, couple caveats at this point. Now, I'm I'm pretty far out from having been in the military. It's about 10 years since I left the military at this point. And some things have changed in that time. But mostly the things that have changed are physical fitness standards, some operational practices. Definitely the focus has gone from conflict in the Middle East to some sort of understanding that the likelihood is that the next big conflict, or at least the next big conflict to be prepared for, is more likely to be in the Pacific theater than in the Middle East. Um, things have changed pretty drastically in the, the world political arena in the past 10 years. Um, so this is something to keep an eye on, but I tried to make sure that the 10 things that I discuss are relatively timeless to give someone maybe a different perspective on what they might have thought about the military before. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, without further ado, here we go. So the number one thing, or the first, is that I, I didn't understand this really uh, going in, but you are an athlete. So all of the services, regardless of the, you can say, the stringency of the levels that they require, all of the services have a physical fitness requirement. And that's not only to get you ready for potential 
battlefield performance, but also just for deployability. Okay, so I uh, saw a study that was released recently, and there's kind of like this ongoing challenge of military these days to recruit because not a lot of Americans or a lesser percentage of Americans are what they would call fit for service. So many people have disabilities or don't have the requisite physical fitness level. Uh, I think some of this is also caused by lack of ability, we'll call it agility, to, for change in the military. So they're still looking at a set of recruitment requirements and practices that were probably set in the 80s and continued through my time in the military. And, um, you know, if, if you are requiring a drug waiver from people who smoked weed, for example, um, that's going to be difficult when you're living in a world where there's not marijuana prohibition in every single state. So, you know, the legalization of marijuana could play a role in that, but that's neither here nor there. So there's the agility portion as far as the ability of institutions to adapt to ongoing changes in society. And then there's this kind of uh, the actual, once you're in the military piece. So there's the lack of ability for these in to for these organizations to recruit volunteers and once you're in there okay you have the kind of these couple different things that you should understand and that is you know the marine corps especially like emphasizes physical fitness on a level probably that none of the other services do uh maybe the army different standards of course but uh, that is because the Marine Corps and the Army are training people to be fighting on the ground, boots on the ground. Uh, you know, if you're running up a hill, doing some sort of, even if you're just like at a basic infantry training and you're doing a frontal assault up a hill at Camp Pendleton, with all of your gear on, not even your rucksack, just like your basic combat kit load, uh, it gets heavy and you have adrenaline rushing through your uh, body and you're looking at, and this is just a training evolution. This is not real combat either. So there's this aspect of physical fitness and being an athlete for this battlefield performance. But then there's also an issue of just deployability. So when I say you're an athlete, like deployability means that you can function, really. It means that you're able to run a physical fitness test, a combat fitness test, whatever the other requirements of your service are. And there's this, you get beat up when you're in the military and you're constantly doing field exercises, uh, even just the basic physical fitness practices because maybe they're not programmed the best or they again come from a bygone era so you're doing a lot of potentially high impact things on the body and you're not doing what maybe like a dr andy galpin would uh would 
prescribe, right? You're doing, oh, Gunny says let's run four miles. So you run four miles and then half of the Marines maybe didn't even build up to four miles in their ability to run or they're running four miles at a higher pace than they ought to be for the majority of their work. So the it's not like a necessarily a tuned physical fitness practice, which means that to maintain your deployability, you have to understand things like mobility and how to keep your body ready to perform even when it's getting beat up. And that's not an easy task. Um, so think of yourself like an athlete. And the reason that I call it deployability um, is I like to look at the military kind of as if, you know, it's it's constantly trying to maintain its readiness. So the analogy I look at is kind of, it's like sharpening an axe. And you really are the axe blade as a part of the military. So they need to hone readiness for worldwide deployability in like constantly, right? So it's kind of like a constantly sharpening axe. And in what happens is... I'm sure if you've seen like a grindstone and an axe before or a piece of metal and a diamond studded uh, grindstone, you see these sparks come off. And I kind of look at that as people because sometimes what happens is, you know, you get overtrained, your body wasn't ready to, to take that load. And then you can get hurt in a way that is not easily fixable. And then what ends up happening is you get a medical discharge or you're not allowed to reenlist. And uh, that's not an ideal outcome. But if you know the right practices, sometimes you could ameliorate those challenges or reduce the impact of those injuries and whatnot on, on the body. All right. Number two, and I'll try to go a little bit faster here. Number two is the importance of fit. So each service has its own culture. And sometimes I think back and I, I think, you know, maybe I wasn't the best fit for the Marine Corps. I'm uh, probably a little bit too cerebral. But the truth of it is, you know, the group of people who joined the Marines are probably a little bit, you know, maybe not uh, <laughs> the most completely normal in their head. Like they are drawn to this challenge of being Marines. And so there's a bit of insanity in the Marine Corps. But the thing that I would encourage people to look at when it comes to the fit is, uh, you know, we'll talk about it, but really when you're a enlisted person, you usually enlist for what's called an occupational field. And that's really the only thing you can control because once you sign your name on the line, that is it. They own you, right? Uh, so instead of looking at like, I want to be a Marine or I want to be a sailor, a soldier, airman, look at, in your occupational field, what does that end job look like? And some of those are going to be the same across all services, like an air traffic controller's life, other than running like a Marine Corps fitness test and combat fitness test compared to like an Air Force physical fitness test, like that's, or PT test, I think they call it. That's the, going to be the main difference. So probably the Marines communicate a little bit in a, more hardcore fashion but the goal 
like what someone should look at when they consider fit is try to compare apples to apples. And like, if I want to be a linguist or I want to be an intelligence analyst, what do I want my life to look like? And then look at each of the four services. That's going to be a different job when you talk about like the army and the Marine Corps, which have a more tactical warfighting focus than it would the Air Force or the Navy who have their uh, different spheres of influence. And they obviously fight the war and they call it tactical, but you're talking boots on the ground versus planes and drones versus, uh, you know, the water in the Navy. So, all right, differences between officer and enlisted uh, officers are the managerial class. They have different expectations. They're not allowed to get in trouble or their career is pretty much over, usually. Um, there's been some exceptions to that, but that's not, this podcast is not the, it's not the point of this podcast. We'll not cover that today. Um, you can go into boot camp for the Marine Corps doing three pull-ups and running a mile and a half in, I think, 15 or 16 minutes. Um, that's not going to be the case for officer candidate school. So officers are expected to have a much higher physical fitness level at the outset. And, you know, there are differences between the way that both groups are indoctrinated or not indoctrinated and how they're treated in service. Generally, officers get treated less like children and are expected to comport themselves as such. Number four, uh, culture. The military culture has a lot of good things. There's a lot of... Um, esprit de corps. There's a lot of feeling like you have a team and a purpose, and that's okay. That's good. Uh, but I would say that some of the aspects of the military culture are not as conducive to leading a good life and living a good life afterwards. So I would just say, you know, when your platoon or wing or whatever is going out to the strip club or going out to do whatever, um, even though you know, like a booze, boozing was really a big part of the culture in Camp Lejeune. Uh, it's okay to not do those things. And you will thank yourself when you get out. Like you can still have friends and stuff, but, and I encourage you to have friends, but I would recommend trying to stay away from some of the worst parts of the, um, you know, parts of the culture where it's kind of more party culture or uh, in some cases like the real housewives of the trailer park type culture on some of the enlisted uh, base housing, which is a bad thing to say, but I mean, it's what I saw when I was there. So you can take that how you want. Um, so, you know, it's, I understand there's this aspect of like, you could get deployed tomorrow and go to a faraway place and die. Right. And so a lot of people drink or drink because they don't have a, when it comes down to it, it's a reaction to a lack of control in their lives, but that builds poor habits for the long run. And it's something that I've seen a lot of people have to deal with when, and confront when they leave the military. So trying to give a heads up, a lot of people smoke because of the stress and then, you know, they end up, they think it's just a cool thing to do, go to the smoke pit 
and then they end up like you know fighting lung cancer um because they got predisposed due to their smoking to you know pit burning stuff in the desert or just even if you're not talking about that in the cancer aspects like what about just quitting the bad habit when you're done i've seen a lot of people fight with that uh now it's number five it's dangerous all right you only have so much control especially as an enlisted person as an officer you have it seems much more of an internal locus of control uh which makes life a little bit i think better for them one would argue arguably there's no research to say that uh that i know of but just trust me on that not just trust me but you can look up the research yourself um so you have a f enlisted occupational field usually when you go in, but that's really all you control. So where you go is up to the military once you've signed on the dotted line and completed your training. Uh, and a lot of deaths occur off duty. That's the other aspect to the dangerous side of this. So even during the height of Iraq and Afghanistan, there were some years where the US military lost more personnel to off-duty accidents and suicides than they did during war. This is something to consider. I'm not saying don't join, not saying any of that. I'm just saying it, it's a good idea to maintain perspective throughout the entire experience. And when you go off duty and there's like a safety brief and it seems like it's the dumbest thing in the world, why do we have to listen to it? Well, you have to listen to it because so many other weekends over the past like 100 years, 200 years, um, <clears throat> at least during the active periods of the services, you know, the people go off duty and don't come home. Uh, I lost a couple friends to vehicle accidents or saw people whose careers were really promising and then they drove too fast one time and that was it and they're either in jail or permanently injured and we're talking stuff where or dead and that's stuff where alcohol wasn't even involved you add alcohol in it it's like putting gasoline on a fire i know i sound like a grandpa but i'm talking with some experience here uh now we're going to go a little bit more to kind of professional things and less, you know, don't do this. Um, so relationships, you know, I guess I was naive when I joined the military. I thought I would go away for five years and come back to Minnesota and everything would be just the same. It had always been, uh, but that's not how it works. It's not a parallel timeline. It's not like editing a sound file where you get to just put yourself back in at the same place that you left. Um, you'll have changed your home will have changed. Um, it's important, of course, to maintain relationships with family and friends during your time of service. That gives you roots, it grounds you. Uh, but it's also important to understand that the relationships that you form while you're in the military with your people that you talk to when you are in, especially like in the early years, those relationships will continue. I have plenty of people who I met 20 years ago when I joined the military and I still talk to them. Sometimes I talk to them more than I talk to 
some of my friends around. So it's important you to build bonds. Um, and you know, your name is important. And if you do it right, you're kind of building a brand as I don't know. I think that's kind of like a funny statement, this building a brand concept, but Hey, you're building a brand. And the idea is, you know, especially if in certain fields, if you're going to work in the same type of work, when you get out, that name can help you get jobs and things. So you're kind of, when you join, you're setting out on your professional life and you need to think that way rather than just thinking, oh, it's something I'm going to do for a little bit and be gone. And maybe other people have that perspective and don't need to be explained it. But for me, it was something that I learned probably a little bit later than I should have. Uh, finances. So uh, the military went from a retirement, um, like to a defined benefit retirement to a partially defined um, contribution and then partially defined benefit program. So it helps if you can learn financial matters right away. It helps to start saving in like a Roth IRA or your thrift savings plan um, as soon as you possibly can. And that's just because of the power of compound interest. A lot of people, you know, they don't teach financial education in high school, at least in the States. I don't know of anywhere where they do. And it's a really good thing to get that squared away early. So um, the classic book for this is Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I'm not really the biggest fan of that guy uh, for a variety of reasons, but in his book in particular, like he kind of has a flippant approach to a four-year degree. And I would just say that, you know, with the, like the biggest reason not to go to, to college, other than if it doesn't fit your goals at all, is the cost of a four-year education in the United States. It's insane. Um, there's a pretty high return on it for most of your college, of your applicable majors. However, like the cost is an issue, but with the 21st century GI bill or the forever GI bill, it's, it makes it doable in such a way that the ROI return on investment is definitely there. And so I see there's this group that I'm in on Facebook for a bunch of veterans and they talk about financial matters and the kind of way that people just dismiss college is kind of ridiculous to me. Like I understand that if you have to go into all kinds of debt to go to college, probably not the best idea, but if you can get a four-year degree in an applicable uh, thing, in an applicable major, and then get out of it with a minimal amount of debt, then it's worth it. And I don't see why unless you absolutely know whatever you do does not require that for your diploma, then sure. But I don't understand why some of these people are like, no, I have the GI bill. I'm just not going to use it and whatever. So the books I recommend are, I will teach you to be rich by Ramit Sethi. Uh, that is a great book for people who are probably under the age of 40. And um, by this, not that, by Sam Dogan. 
And if you're religious, then maybe Dave Ramsey would be your guy. And I don't know his particular books because I'm not like a adherent to his teachings. But these are, they can help you sort your way through like the odd alphabet that is the U.S. tax code and personal finance, give you strategies. Uh, I would say I Will Teach You To Be Rich is a little bit more basic, general concepts, and then Buy This, Not That by Sam Dogan, uh, the financial samurai, goes into like specific, actionable things, examples with numbers on there, and what he's done and his kind of thinking on the things, which I think is the most valuable part because he has a finance background and it's really interesting to see that. Now, uh, a side note on finances, like if you just avoid these things, you'll be good to go, all right? Stay away from payday loan centers, anywhere that lets you buy a put a loan on rims for your car, and any car dealership that's trying to sell you a $40,000 car when you're making less than $2,000 a month, okay? So if you can stay away from hot cars, payday loans, rims, this kind of stuff that just for some reason is allowed to proliferate. It's like a straight up predatory concept around every military base out there. You'll be fine. Like really just buy a Toyota Corolla or something that's reliable, a few years old, drive around, don't drive at 90 and don't go out boozing and drinking and driving. You're pretty much covering yourself for most of the stuff I'm talking about here. You know, put money in TSP, get a Roth IRA, you're good to go. Make sure that Roth IRA is invested in something. Um, all right, so we got three left. Set yourself up for getting out. Um, as difficult as it is to gain entry into and get through a military enlistment, it's, I think, harder to get out. Because, you know, you join at a period in life when your brain is still forming, you get institutionalized. Um, I think it's interesting that, you know, prisoners and people in the military use a lot of the same language, right? Like, how long you been in? What are you in for? <laughs> getting out? Oh, you're getting out? And then they, people feel like when people are signing out or when you tell your command you're not going to reenlist, it's always like they treat you like you're dead and they'll not sink any money into you for training or anything. It's, it's weird how that works. But so even if you're, so if you're planning on getting out, I recommend setting yourself up at least a year and a half out. You got to have a plan and you got to have a network and you need to save a financial cushion to survive on until you get to college or get that first job. And it's not easy because a year and a half out, you're still, it doesn't feel like you're anywhere close. I mean, we're talking basically if you got a four-year enlistment, I'm telling you that about halfway you should be thinking about getting out. And that's not easy. It's like you're carrying a, a you know, 100-pound ruck and you still got, you know, a third or, uh, you know, uh, what do you call it? Not three quarters, uh, three eighths of the journey to go. And I'm telling you to get ready to get out 
but to drop that pack and move on. But she got to do it. Um, yeah, so for this and for the finances, there's like a guy named Joseph, I think David Para or P-E-R-E, and he writes, wrote a book called The No BS Guide to Military to success in the military. So he has a bunch of other tips. He's got a YouTube channel, all this stuff. He might be worth uh, looking into. He was also a Marine staff sergeant. And I've looked at some of his stuff. I have not read his book yet. It's on my list. Um, all right. So things, other things, uh, miscommunication. Um, I remember when I was joining up, I saw the movie Gallipoli. And I was very concerned about just ridiculous tragedies happening because of a lack of communication. So I'm going to file this under miscommunication. And my recruiter was like, no, man, this doesn't happen anymore. And that was in the days when it was just, you know, two wire phones and people were laying down phone lines. And Mel Gibson's character in that movie is like a basically a sprinter who's meant to he works as a messenger to deliver messages between the trenches and the different officers and stuff. But uh, the truth of the matter is, I think this is probably something that's perpetual, like will always be a thing, but there's always going to be miscommunication. There's been several high profile friendly fire incidents throughout the Iraq war, which is definitely after I joined so my recruiter was wrong. Uh, lots of friendly fire. Pat Tillman is an example. I read a story the other day about some, like during the Battle of Fallujah, there was a series of bad decisions that ended up with the artillery fire killing a couple of Marines and wounding like basically five or six to the point where a couple of them had to be medically discharged. And it was all due to some negligence. Like, these things may happen. Uh, and it's unfortunate, but I think it's even with satellite communications like is going on in the Ukraine war right now, I think that's still going to be a perpetual aspect and theme in warfare. And, you know, that's something to understand if you're joining. And uh, number 10. You get what you put in, but you have to decide what you want to take out of it. Um, so you can, if you apply yourself in the military, you can be very successful. And you can decide which aspects of the culture you want to take part in. If you want to go drinking and womanizing or manizing, you can do that. That's It's up to you. Um, there are some very valuable things you learn in the military, like the work ethic and the self-discipline. But, you know, uh, there are things that can maybe not help you so much. Like if you experience some sort of trauma, that might not help you out in the long run. It's not something you can control. Uh, you can control your reaction to it. Um, as far as the culture itself goes, since we're in peacetime, you know, it's less likely that you're going to walk away with a case of post-traumatic stress, which is it's a good thing. Uh, I would say, you know, even in the culture of the military, 
there are certain things that will help you, certain things that won't. If you carry a little drill instructor on your shoulder for the rest of your life, that becomes your way of talking to yourself, that's not going to be helpful. There's a lot of research that shows that self-compassion, it builds resilience in a way that screaming at yourself and consistent negative self-talk does not do. Um, there's a couple books that you know point this stuff out, but self-confidence is, is a good thing, but it can sometimes lead you down the wrong path because you're not willing to listen to feedback and these types of things. But a sense of self-compassion allows you to not be threatened when someone gives you some negative feedback and you're able to kind of evaluate and see and then fix whatever it is and move on. And an internal voice that sounds like a drill instructor, like, hello, Yoohoo, I don't know why we're talking to blah, blah, blah that way. I don't know why. Da, 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 da. And you got someone like screaming at you on your shoulder, you know, uh, that's, that's not going to be helpful when you get out talking to people like Marines at least used to talk to each other. I, I imagine some of that is still there. It's probably softened with the times as the generations who are comprising the enlistees has changed. Some of that probably changed, but I know that there's still probably like, hello, you who I don't know why we got our hands in our pockets. Hello, knucklehead. You're the worst fucking person in the world. Cause you didn't get a haircut on Saturday. Like dumb things where that dude is running around cheating on his wife and you're the worst person in the world because you didn't get a haircut and now he's going to impugn your morality based on that. It's so asinine and absolutely ridiculous. You can choose if you want to bring that with you or not. Personally, I wouldn't take the methods of communication uh, from the military and use them with anyone anywhere ever. I find like on the daily, I have to like keep myself 20 years later from telling my two-year-old like, hello, hello, you who, I don't know why we're staring off at rocks when we should be riding our balance bike. You know, hello today, sometime today, if you want to stop staring around, you can freaking move forward. But the truth is, it's part of the kid's development to look around. So I just, even 20 years later, have to make a decision of what I'm going to bring forward in my life and what I'm not. And so I try, even all these years later, to maintain the work ethic, the self-discipline, the ability to push myself physically to a point of exhaustion. So that way, I'm constantly trying to increase my mental and physical toughness, but also to try to come from a place of compassion for not only myself, but for other people in my life. And that's, that's a personal thing, but I can tell you that for each person in the military, I've seen a lot of people transition out. I've seen a lot of people die early because of high blood pressure, because of lack of physical fitness. So some people get out and they drop the pack on every single practice. And I did for a while too, you know, um, a lot of these uh, things can remind you of the bad things you hated about the Marine Corps 
or the military and then you like push against it and you resist but then what is you know not participating in physical fitness going to do for you or not doing x because it reminded you of the military um you know I, I, you can see it on people's faces i don't know that and there's no research that has been done on this i see a lot of people get sick of shaving so they grow beard and it's like okay man but now you look like grizzly adams like i don't know maybe that's just personal prejudice against beards but you know a lot of these guys would be i think more presentable if they just just shave or at least keep the beard trimmed up a little bit come on let me go on the record as being a beard hater this ain't the 1970s no i'm i'm just kidding um but that's like, so that's a small microcosm example of someone pushing against something because they spent however many years having to shave every day, even while on lever, liberty. And they say, you know what? I don't want to do that. Well, what if you do that with a physical fitness practice? Oh, I don't want to ever run because it gives me flashbacks of my gunny in his camis, grabbing a cup of coffee, telling me to go run four miles and not joining us on the run or whatever. And then you get in a situation where you're in your thirties and you got high blood pressure and you know, you're at risk of a stroke. So what do you do? You know, you have to pick what you want to take out from this experience and what you don't. And you can start that by having some of the right habits and mental practices while you're in. I wish I knew about meditation and these types of things when I was in. Um, but hey, we all go through our own process. So I hope this is helpful. Uh, again, this is all advice is someone else's experience distilled. So this is a little bit of my experiences and the things I noticed. And I'm hoping that that gives someone perspective and helps a little bit. And if not, uh, you know, give me some feedback. I don't think I still have a Twitter account. I'm pretty sure I deleted that. So, uh, yeah, hit me up on Facebook or go to the RD3 show community on Facebook and you can give me feedback there. But if you enjoyed this, please subscribe. Go ahead and give us a review on Apple podcast or Spotify. And, uh, I hope this was enjoyable and informative at the same time. I know I wasn't on a comedic step most of it, but uh, we'll see. And we'll have some episodes out in the near future. Thanks a lot and have a great day.